Good morning. All right, turn your Bibles, if you will, to uh, James, the book of James, chapter 1. Jackson said, are, are you doing the message this week, uh, Dad? And I said, uh, yeah. He said, hey, it's, Father Day. it's Father's Day. What's your uh, message? And I said, uh, God's purposes and our suffering. <laughs> he said, hey, 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 I hope you don't feel that way about being a dad. <laughs> But let's look in, uh, let's look in the, our uh, text this morning. This will be our jumping off spot for us. And uh, James chapter 1, we'll start there in verse 2. And it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, suffering is something that's, that's common to all men, uh, whether we're rich, poor, we're kings or peasants, uh, believers or non-believers. Suffering is something we all have in common. There's the sun, there's the moon, and then there's suffering. And they will be suffering until there are no longer a sun or a moon. So it's something that uh, we all know of, and we all understand that it's there. Now, mankind's considered the problem of suffering for, for as long as there's been a problem. In an attempt to understand it, or at least try to mitigate it or minimize it in some way. Uh, every different uh, religion in the world, uh, different philosophies try to tackle the problem. There's a couple of views here that I, I found interesting. One of them was the docetic view of suffering, and it, it's pretty interesting because it says that it doesn't exist. There's no such thing as suffering. Uh, this is the Christian science view of suffering, by the way. Uh, and they say it's all in our mind. Um, that uh, it's the product of our carnal mind, the whole idea of suffering and pain. Now, naturally, that's a hard sale. Uh, if you look in the newspaper, you look at your own life, that's a hard sale. And then there's the Stoic view. And the Stoic view recognizes that there is, of course, uh, suffering in the world, but it says uh, there's nothing we can do about it. It's fate. It's karma. Our choices don't matter. It's just the way it is. Their idea against suffering is to develop a, a thick skin. Tough it out. Uh, don't let it get you down. That's their whole idea behind suffering. When you think of this, you usually think of the British people. They're, they're kind of known to be stoic people. Um, we were watching a show about Queen Elizabeth the other night, and that was Billy Graham in the 1950s had came to London, and they were watching it in Buckingham Palace on the new invention there, the TV. And uh, when the camera panned around uh, to the crowd, people were weeping under the preaching of, of Billy Graham. The queen and the queen mother said, oh my goodness, what has this country come to? Yeah. And it wasn't so much because of the preaching, it was that they were showing emotion uh, in public. And that, that's just not the British way. You keep the stiff upper lip and you drive on. That's the stoic view when it comes to suffering. Then there's the hedonistic view. The hedonistic view recognizes that they're suffering and therefore they believe it's man's uh, uh, responsibility to try to seek the maximum pleasure in all that he does. Okay, so this is the uh, this is what we think of when we think of the Roman Empire and the debauchery, the 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 drunkenness and the gluttony and all that went with the Roman Empire. Um, now, interestingly enough, about this view, uh, they had to tweak it a bit. To seek maximum pleasure turns out causes suffering in and of itself. 
So they had to tweak that to optimize pleasure. So, you know, one too many hangovers, they figured out that this was not the way to go. But even in optimized pleasure, that's where we see today, and, and, and hedonism is all over our world today. That's how people try to deal with any kind of problem in their life, is try to seek some kind of pleasure to uh, counter that. But the, and the thought of optimizing pleasure is where we get the whole idea of, of the way some cook. And you ever watch how they cook, and, and they'll have these special ingredients that were brought from the far ends of the world, and you think, what's that about? Well, this is an idea of, of hedonism. It's to try to enjoy everything to its maximum. Wines that are, that are grown in certain soils and different climates, it, it, it's all part of this view of, of uh, hedonistic view of suffering. Now then there's the Christian view, and in the Christian view we know what the root cause of suffering is. We know that when Adam sinned, uh, that uh, death came into the world and with it came suffering and pain. That we live in a fallen world, and that it's a product of that. Uh, so, we also, so we recognize that it's, it's not just the problem of suffering. The real problem, the root problem, is sin in our lives. That's what happened. It came into the world, and now we have to deal with the uh, results of that. Now, Christianity was born out of suffering. It was only through the greatest suffering that, that anybody's ever suffered that our salvation was secured. It's what Christ had to do. And no one has ever suffered like he suffered. So we understand the problem of suffering. Even our Lord in Mark 8, 34, in his call, he says, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, when he said that in the first century, the cross was known as an instrument of, of death and, and suffering, torture. Uh, in the first century, you really wouldn't say that to, uh, in polite company. It was really thought that poorly of the cross. It, it was that hard of a symbol about suffering. Uh, matter of fact, uh, Cicero, the Roman statesman, once said that it was a ghastly form of execution that should be reserved only for the lowest of slaves and then only to make an example of them. So they knew exactly what the cross meant. Now, in 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul says, We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. So whenever they preached about the crucifixion, uh, they didn't accept it because it was so offensive to them. The, the actual idea of God being subjected to suffering and shame was scandalous and foolishness. But however, today, we have crosses on bumper stickers, we got crosses on jewelry, we got in church, you can find crosses around here. Now, we don't look at it so much for what the suffering and the shame meant, do we? We look beyond that, we look at the glory. It, it means victory and triumph and glory to us. Um, Hebrews 12, 12 says this, Looking unto, the, unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus had joy, and that joy wouldn't end the suffering. Okay, We can see that clearly in the Bible. When he was in the garden, he agonized. He was absolutely agony, sweating great drops of blood, as it were. There was no fun in the suffering at all. What his joy was looking past the suffering to what it would accomplish. That was the joy that was set before him. And that's what we do. When we look at the cross, we see an empty cross. It's empty because we have a risen Christ, don't we? So, so it's, it's, it means something different to us now. So uh, we, when we look at suffering, it's important to understand that it's not just some kind of interruption, it's not, that the Bible doesn't give us a way just to deal with an interruption in our lives, that, that it somehow 
could get in the way of God's plan, so we have to deal with it. It's actually part of God's plan, and it's an important part of God's plan. It is a valuable tool that God uses in our lives to conform us to the image of Christ. It's, it's more powerful, more powerful than we ever know. Uh, and the Christian view of suffering, there's a, a particular point that all Christians don't agree with, and it's, it's, that's sad because... Uh, the sovereignty of God in suffering is a very important point to make if you're ever going to discuss suffering. There are some Christians that when they think of the question that if God can stop my suffering, if he has the power to keep me from suffering, yet he doesn't do it, well, they have a problem with that. They don't like where that's leading. So they'll jump through many hoops trying to reconcile that. But if they do, they destroy the only hope that we have in suffering. And, and, and if you think about it, if God doesn't have the power to keep us from suffering, how do we know he's got the power to sustain us in suffering, to bring us through suffering, and to accomplish his good purposes in our suffering? You don't. If God doesn't have the power to keep us from it, he, but he does have the power to keep us from it. Matter of fact, he does keep us from suffering all the time, and he does allow suffering for us all the time. He is absolutely sovereign in all things, and that includes our suffering. Uh, the call, to, uh, the call to Christ is not, uh, it doesn't come with a bait and switch, right? We know from the get-go we're not promised health, wealth, or prosperity, but we are promised suffering. It says in uh, John 16, 33, Jesus said, In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, 12, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So we can be confident in the fact that whatever suffering... We are subjected to, in the will of God, right? It's that the suffering that we have in the will of God. If if you uh, rob a bank and get 20 years in prison, that suffering is justice. That's that's not uh, what we're talking about here. But when we are uh, subjected to suffering in the will of God, uh, it's not meaningless, it's not senseless, but rather it's been filtered through the perfect wisdom of the mind of a loving God to accomplish a good purpose and for His glory. Now let's look at our text right quick. In James 1, let's look at verse 2. It says this, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now this is an imperative. It's a command. It's a command to have joy. Um, when they, if there's a command, we do know that there's something we've got to do on our part, don't we? When, the, when there's a command. It's not automatic. And that means we're going to have to cultivate joy in our suffering. It doesn't come easy. We have to cultivate it. Now, joy is a product of hope. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit, is it not? And uh, the Spirit manifests himself in our life through joy because the Spirit himself is a pledge for the great hope that we have in Christ, right? So we have joy in, as Christians because we have a hope, a great hope. Now, what's our hope in the suffering? What's the hope in our trial that will enable us to obey the command to be jo joyful? Well, it's in verse 3. Look at it. It says, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Because you know, therefore, you can be joyful. You know it. Therefore, the command is be joyful. What do we know? Well, we know that there's hope. There's hope because there's a purpose in our suffering. Always. Okay? So we've looked at the over, overarching purpose of, of, of uh, God conforming us to the image of Christ through our suffering. Let's look at a handful of uh, specific ones. There's faith. Let's look at faith for a second. 
And this may be the biggest and most common purpose in all of our trials. You'll see this woven through maybe every trial we'll ever have in our lives. Uh, and that is uh, to test uh, the quality of our faith. Um, now, the Old Testament reading this morning for, uh, about Abraham was a good example of that, and that's what we'll look at. God promised Abraham, if you remember, that he would make a great nation to him, that uh, all the families in the world would be blessed through him, and that Isaac was the uh, son of that promise. Without Isaac, no promise, right? So when God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, uh, he was armed with two things, okay? He was armed with two very important things. He didn't have the scripture like we've got today, but he had two very important things to help him through that trial. One was his knowledge of the character of God. Abraham knew God, okay? And two was the promise of God. Now, Abraham knew God, and knowing God, there was something that seemed outside the character of God when he asked him to sacrifice a human being. That's not something Abraham had seen of God. A human sacrifice, this seemed outside the character of God. So Abraham very well may have thought, I don't know if he's going to go through with this, but I will obey him. Because if you notice, he never argued with God. Now this, this is a, a, something to ask of a man, but he never argued. He submitted immediately to obey God. But the, uh, the way he, re he uh, uh, used his knowledge of God was that this is not in the character of God. So he very well may have said, hey, I don't think he will do this. I don't think he will. Now you say, how do you know that, Rick? Well, I don't know that. But if we look at Genesis 22.5 that was read this morning, and it said, and Abraham said to his young man, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship. And we will come back to you. Jason put emphasis on that this morning because of that very point. We will come back. He had a confidence. Now he had a confidence that this was going to work out. And that's where this faith comes from. And in verse 8 it says, when Isaac asked him, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, which is exactly what God did, isn't it? Now, having said that, Abraham said, I don't know if he'll make me do it. I don't know for sure. I know this, I will obey him. He's trustworthy. And the second reason was the promise. He knew the character of God and he knew the promise of God. Okay? And that promise, without, uh, without Isaac, that promise is broken. And Abraham knows God will never break a promise. So it says in uh, Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19, let me read that to you. By faith... Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. So he used, he reasoned in his mind, knowing the character of God and the promises of God, that, hey, I don't know if he'll stop me from doing it or not. However, I will obey because he will not break his promise. And even if I do kill my son. God will raise him from the dead if need be to fulfill that promise. So Abraham passed that, that test with flying colors and we can learn a lot from that in his submission and obedience and, and faith and trust in God. Uh, so much so that he is now the model of faith isn't he, in the Bible. That's our model of faith. God will put us through trials to show us the strength or the weakness of our faith. Another thing would be our humility, okay? Humility. Pride is a very a uh, difficult thing to self-diagnose sometimes. It's always there. It's always in us. It's there waiting to flare up at any moment. And when it does flare up, we really have a hard time seeing it because we're so close to it. So 
God will use trials to humble us. And he will use trials to preserve humility, which is exactly what he did with Paul. Uh, if you remember, Paul had received many glorious revelations from Christ, right? He had seen the glorified Christ on several occasions. He was even called up into the third heaven. Now, that's, that's something on a resume that not many people have, that they have had a pre-taste of heaven, right? But Paul could. And with that kind of resume, you could really get to thinking a lot of yourself. So in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul says this about it. He said, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Now, what was the thorn in the flesh? Eh, it's you know, kind of controversial. Some people say it was a, a physical ailment that he had. Some people say it was, a, it was people, it was a person. Since it says a messenger of Satan, it was more than likely uh, false teachers at Corinth that would come in and they would try to tear up Paul's reputation. They'd draw people away. Paul, people that Paul loved would take sides with them and it was heartbreaking and crushing to him. Whatever it was, that's not really the point. The point was it was chronic. It lasted the rest of Paul's life and it was very painful to him. And we know that because in verse eight, he said concerning this thorn in the flesh, he said, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Now, He's really wanting this to stop because it's painful and it hurts. And this brings up a good point as well. Since trials are for our good and God's glory and he's got a purpose in them, should we ever pray to be taken out of a trial? Yeah, Paul just did, didn't he? He paid three times to take him out of the trial. Of course we can. And, and, and that very well may be the purpose of the trial. George Mueller, uh, if you remember George Mueller, uh, when he set up the orphanage in, in England in the 1800s, he did that uh, not so much for the orphans, but so that, that uh, Christians could have faith in God. He set it up that he was going to uh, not go beg for money, that God would provide everything, or he wouldn't have it. And God did provide everything. And there were many, many times in his ministry that things were needed, he prayed for them, and they, he got them, okay? And that was the whole purpose in those trials was to say yes, so that his faith might be built up and those around him. So that very well could be it. But we got to also, you know, understand there's a possibility that God will say not now, not now, or no, which is what he said to Paul. So he said, uh, and God said to, to Paul, he said, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Okay, so the answer is no, right? Now, how does Paul feel about it? Well, he says, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, happy about it. He's happy about it. Now, nothing's changed. It's still as painful as it always was. It's still there until the day he dies, and he died by having his head lopped off, okay? So the guy knows about suffering. Suffering didn't change. Circumstances didn't change. But his attitude certainly did change towards it. And the reason was he... He so much wanted the power of Christ to rest on him more than the, that suffering hurt, right? He, he most certainly did. And he said, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecution, in distresses for Christ's sake. Now, he's not a masochist, okay? He, he don't, when he says he takes pleasure in that, it's, he's just like us. These are things that, that are hard. There, there's not anything that's good in and of themselves. There is nothing virtuous in suffering in and of itself. 
Everybody suffers. Adolf Hitler suffered. There's nothing virtuous in that. It's our response to God knowing that there is a purpose in our trial, being obedient and, uh, and uh, trusting to God. And so uh, he took absolute pleasure in it. Why? Because he knew that the power of Christ would rest on him when he was at his weakest point is when the power of Christ was strongest on him. And so he says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So God will use trials to, uh, to keep us humble. Now, another thing that we uh, can run into is to wean us off of stuff, okay? Stuff, that's materialism. And that can be a real stumbling block for Christians, especially in the country we live in, right? We, we have the latest, greatest, I got this thing here, this iPad. Uh, Jackson, I show me how to use it, but... Uh, <laughs> But the, the technology's great. I mean, I just talked into this thing and it came up on there, you know. So we can become addicted to these things and, it's, and start to believe that it's money or it's this stuff that we get our security, you know. Everybody feels better if they got a big bank account, yeah. But that's not our security. So we can get to feeling like the money and the stuff is our comfort, it's, it's our happiness. I know a person that gets a new car about every three to four months, they trade up and get a new car because they love having a new car. It makes them feel good. I don't know how they afford that, but they do it, you know. Uh, so sometimes God will bring trials in our life to wean us off of that. Sometimes he may take it from us, take the stuff away, or sometimes he may bring things into our lives that'll put the stuff in perspective. And then we'll realize that does not comfort, that does not keep me safe, and that stuff certainly does not bring me joy. And, and he will show you what does bring you joy, right? Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other, but you cannot serve God and mammon or stuff, okay? So God will wean us off of the, uh, the stuff if it becomes an idol in our lives. Now the next thing, uh, that God can do is, is it's for comfort. Comfort is a reason, that, a purpose that he'll bring trials into our life. Second Corinthians 1, 3, and 4, let me read that right quick. It said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God will bring trials into your life so that you'll be a comfort to someone else who has had that same problem that he's gonna bring into their, into their life. Uh, now God is, of course, uh, the source of the comfort, but it is a privilege that he would allow us to, to be used in that, in that way. Now you notice that Paul says, God is the God of all comfort. In John 14, 26, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the comforter. Let me just pick some of these things out of scripture here. This is just where I reach in and take a pinch out, and let's see what it says about comfort. Psalm 23, 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Isaiah 49, 13. Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and break out in singing, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. Isaiah 51.3, for the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort her in her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in it and thanksgiving and joy 
and voice of melody. Isaiah 61.2, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Matthew 5.4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Acts 9.31, then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Are you starting to see the point here? Our God is a God of comfort. He is a comforter by his very nature, okay? And so even in the New Testament reading this morning, if he gave up his son, how much more is it, will he give us what we need, right? That's, that's, that's saying I've gave you the best. It's a small thing to give you comfort. Once you give us Christ, it's a small thing for me to give you comfort, and he will give us comfort. So that's a great thing. He can bring things into your life so that you'll comfort others. And that's something we need to uh, do if it's uh, not only, not only do, uh, can you comfort someone else, but when we suffer with others, when we bear each other's burdens, when we weep with those who weep, we have a vested interest in their life, don't we? When we, we petition the Lord on their sake, if somebody comes in here and they're suffering, they've lost their job and you're concerned about it, you take it to the Lord. When the Lord comforts them, you're comforted, aren't you? When he comes in and says, hey, this is what the Lord's done for me, you are comforted. So we can comfort each other in that way. And we can suffer together in that way. And then we can enjoy the comfort together in that way. Now, we need to recognize trials. You know, all, trials come in all shapes and sizes. And I think, I think sometimes we have a habit of whenever we talk, at least me, whenever we talk about suffering, I immediately go to the worst thing I can imagine. And then fear uh, just comes all over me, you know. So... Uh, but we've got to understand that trials come in all shapes and sizes. They, do, they are some that are Job-like in, in their way, and some of you know that. But they can, they can come in different intensities and different ways. We've got to learn to recognize them. It can be as simple as our relationship with other people. Think of the coworker or the boss that you have. You know. uh, if we don't recognize that for what it is, it could be a boss that makes things hard to get out of bed in the morning sometimes, you know. Not that you do anything wrong, you're trying to do everything right, and they're just, they're, actually, they're not a very good boss, just to be honest, you know. Uh, and you question the wisdom of management to let them be a boss. But do you question the wisdom of God? Because he's the one that's put them in that place. And if he has put them in that place, it's for a purpose. And guess what? If that is a rock in your shoe, it's a trial. It's a trial. And if we don't recognize it, we miss the opportunity to, to respond correctly and to grow in Christ. If we just come home for the next 25 years saying, ah, you know what they, you know, we lose the opportunity. So if we recognize it, then we can uh, go ahead and, and react to that. Now, responding rightly, what do we do here? Once we recognize that a trial, uh, uh, that there is a trial, it's important that we respond in the right way. And Abraham was that model. We submit, trusting to God in obedience. Uh, now, of course, some trials are easily recognizable, right? They, they come along and they knock us on our back. And we know exactly what they are when they happen. They are very stressful, hard trials. Uh, and in that instance, sometimes it can be a real challenge to, to see any kind of purpose in it, to, uh, uh, to know even where to start. You want to obey, you want to respond correctly, but there is so much on you, it is hard to know how to react. Now, James, in our... Uh, in our text here, he's got us covered on that. In verse 5, it said, If anyone, uh, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, 
who gives to all liberally without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, when we're talking about uh, wisdom here, we're not talking about uh, academic or philosophical wisdom. Whenever you talk to a Jew about wisdom, the Jews always had the same definition. And that was a, a practical understanding of how to live life in obedience to the will of God and for his glory. And that's what James is talking about. When you can't, when you can't, make, in, you can't make anything make sense in your trial, ask for wisdom and God will give it to you. And that will, that will give us a perspective on it and tie things together and he will help us to respond rightly in that situation. Uh, but if you notice, wisdom doesn't come automatically. It's not automatic. It doesn't just come, you gotta ask for it. And there's where prayer comes in. Uh, he wants us to pray for it. He wants us to ask for it and he wants to give it to us, okay? Uh, it says that he uh, gives it to us liberally, okay? So he, he doesn't hold anything back. Um, he gives it to us gener generously and without reservation is what that means. And so when he does give it to us, we'll know how to respond appropriately. So we can, we can bet on that. We can have faith that God is going to help us even if we don't know what to do next. Then it's our responsibility once we respond to it to rejoice, to rejoice. If we've responded the right way, then we can have joy and we can rejoice even in our trial. Now we're not talking about the Stoics, right? We're not talking about those Stoics that uh, keep the stiff upper lip. We're not just going to smile. And some folks, you know, they'll say, I, they can be in the awfulest pain in the world and they don't want to uh, let it show to other Christians because they'll think their faith is low or something. No, oh, you, you weep. You need to weep. You weep. Our joy is not dependent on the circumstances. You can, our, our joy comes through the bitter tears. You don't have to do that. We, we're not Stoics. We don't do that. It hurts. It hurts. Uh, but we can still have joy. Even through tears, we can have joy. Not in the circumstances. They're painful. But because we look beyond the circumstances at what God's doing in our life and that it's a good purpose and that he'll be glorified in our life. Philippians 4.4 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. I look the word up always. In uh, Logos Bible software, you know what always means? Always. <laughs> always. It's, uh, it means we're going to rejoice in him continually, the good times, the bad times, especially in the bad times. That may be the best time to rejoice in the Lord, right? But we can rejoice if we respond correctly. Uh, but it's not automatic. If it doesn't come automatically, don't think you've failed. We have to cultivate it. It's hard. It's hard to do. So we have to do the things that, that God, that use the tools that God's given us to do that. Now, lastly... Our right response to suffering has a direct correlation with our eternal rewards, okay? Now, in Philippians 2.8, let me read this to you. Philippians 2.8 through 11 says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so by that, the inference here is because, the therefore, he suffered more than anybody ever suffered, unrepeatable amount of suffering, right? Can't be repeated again. And his response was perfect obedience, right? Because of that, he has been elevated to the highest position in heaven 
right? That, that's where it comes from. And in Mark 10, we see that uh, James and John, the, the old Zebedee boys, they came to the Lord and said, hey, let, let me and uh, my brother sit on your right and left hand in the kingdom, okay? They wanted the high place, the, the prominent place in the kingdom. And look at Jesus' response. He says, you don't know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that, I, that I'm going to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? The thing was, the, the implication here is, you want the most prominent place? Are you willing to suffer that much? Can you suffer like I suffer? So it, there is a direct correlation between our suffering and our eternal rewards, right? Uh, now, what does the reward look like? Now, we're talking about the Bema Seat Judgment of Christ, you know. There, there's not condemnation and shame there. It's just all the stuff that we did that wouldn't for the Lord is burned away. It only leaves the good stuff, okay? Uh, so what does this reward look like? MacArthur said this about that. said, and that reward has nothing to do with sheer external bonuses like fancier crowns, larger heavenly dwelling places, but it relates to our increased capacity to praise, serve, rejoice, and glorify God. And that was Paul's lifelong desire, and it should be ours as well. So it very well could be, if you think about this, even in our ministry. You know, you have a ministry here at church. There is a real danger that we can come to think more of our ministry than we do the one we're doing it for, right? That's a real problem. Uh, and it could very well be that we find ourselves before the Lord, before the, the judgment seat of the Lord, and what we thought was this much of what we did for the Lord after it's been passed through the fire, it's only this much, right? But in our suffering, it's hard for self and pride and those things, that we, as we have seen, to survive during suffering. We tend to mortify that stuff pretty quickly when we need the Lord, don't we? And so there's a sense that which that very well may be the purest treasure that we have laid up in heaven is the suffering that we have done on this earth uh, because it's been pre-fired. It's already been through the fire once, and it has less of that junk in it, less of that junk in it uh, than what we thought. So uh, that's something in and of itself that's worth rejoicing in, isn't it? Okay? All right, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for your word. And Lord, I would ask that uh, you would help us to recognize trials when they come upon us, Lord, that uh, we not waste any opportunity to uh, glorify you and to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, I do pray for those that are in any trial right now that you would be the God of all comfort and that you would uh, give them wisdom to see what they need to do, Lord. And we'd ask that you would be glorified in all things. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.